0: This episode of How to Succeed in Product Management is brought to you in part by support from Apptemptive, which enables product managers to measure shifts in customer emotion and gather actionable feedback across the mobile customer journey. To learn more, go to apptentive.com forward slash UW. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center, and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Every week, Red and I have the pleasure of talking to one of the most generous product leaders in the business and one of the most insightful and most brilliant. And today's topic is decision making. So, when do you know you have enough information to make a decision? How do you make a decision and commit? And how do you deal with people who complain and want you to reverse course? And Sumaya, that brilliant person I was just talking about, who's here every week, has a superpower of explaining why both brand new PMs, or people who've been in in product management for years, or people who are just trying to get in, why all of you need to know about decision-making. So, Sumeya, tell us a little bit about yourself and why this topic is so important.
1: Thank you guys for always bringing awesome content here to the Weekend product and being part of this community. So, I am Sumeya Bengana. I'm a product management leader currently at VMware. I built tech products and have for almost 20 years as a PM, as a CPO, head of product, founder, and an engineer. So when it comes to decision-making, I think there are two two things to think about. There are different styles to decision-making. You, you'll notice over your career that you meet decision-makers that you don't even see that, understand that they're making a decision. Until you look at it later, because they're really collaborative, and they bring people together to make decisions together, And behind it all, they're the ones who are looking at the information and understanding who are the right people to bring into the room to make those decisions. So that's just a point around style that I think it's important for us to keep in mind as we talk about this. So you as a PM. What is your style of decision-making? It's going to look different and we're going to talk about it, I think, in this room. And then the second piece is the technical piece, the, the skills piece. What do you need in terms of information or people or um, thinking or frameworks to actually make those decisions? Uh, so there is, a, I think, a stylistic and then a technical aspect. And as we discuss this together... I think for a brand new PM or an early career PM, you'll find that there is an art and a science. And throughout your career, you'll be balancing both. And I'm excited to hear from other people here on stage around when they use the art and when they use the science. And we can share in that learning together.
0: Thank you, Sumea. Always great to have you. And excellent job at the Inclusive Product Management Summit uh, kicking off the lightning stories uh, for those who. Uh, are not familiar, Sumea came to the Inclusive Product Management Summit and shared a very moving and uh, valuable story about what could happen if you don't include everybody in the decision making and in the process of developing a product. Uh, Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself very briefly and then hop into your decision making style, more quantitative, more data driven, more consensus driven, or where do you take it? So h- describe it however you would like, but tell us a little bit about yourself and your decision making style. Thanks, Jeff. And great to be here. So a bit about me,
2: I work in product management at Microsoft. I'm in the consumer side of the business where we work on loyalty experiences. Uh, If you play Xbox, if you use a Windows PC, you've probably seen our stuff. And it's been a a great hotbed for decision making for me as a product manager. To Jeff's question about is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? Is it detail-oriented or people-oriented? It is all of those things, I think, for me. I really appreciate how uh, Suminga uh, kicked this off and thinking about decisions as as something you do along the way that there is work that you do along the way it's not just a point in time. I think that a lot of of good decision management is understanding the right process and structure to use to frame up decisions and oftentimes you will spend most of the the effort of a decision in setting the right frame so that at that moment when a decision is needed Everybody has what they need to make a decision to commit to that decision and to move forward. I'm not an Amazon guy, but I love one of their leadership principles, disagree and commit. It's that idea that you you, you have it out, you grapple with the, the aspects of the, the problem that need attention, you disagree, you figure out what you're going to do, and then regardless of where you might have been along that journey, everybody comes together and moves forward as one.
0: All right. Thank you, Adam. Uh, Again, Adam from Microsoft. And let's turn to another Microsoft employee and someone who is only going to be able to spend the first three quarters of the show with us. So I'll turn to Greg. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us your decision-making style. Sure. Hi, folks. My name is Greg Young. I'm actually a, a proud UW alum, so really happy to be here. Jeff, thanks for having
3: me on today. As Jeff mentioned, I work at Microsoft as well. Adam haven't met you yet, but uh, nice to meet you here. I'm a product manager in the consumer side as well. I work specifically on OneDrive, so cloud storage for consumers and enterprises. My style is it's always kind of evolving. Um, I've been a product manager at a few different companies, and it's always evolving as I'm learning. I've done some startups in the Bay Area, um, like Red said, not not all the unicorns, some of the smaller ponies as well. But different kind of different places have different styles, and part of it is understanding what's the style of the people who you're trying to get to make the decision and kind of being adapting. And so some people are sometimes very influenced by data. Some people are more influenced by a story. Some people are more influenced by visuals. And so kind of reading the audience and understanding who the audience is, understanding who are the decision makers and really focus on the outcome that you want. Each decision is probably going to try and get you to a different place. So being sure and being clear on what it is you want. And I think and one thing I've learned is I never have all the data I'd like to have. And I, when I was, Earlier in my PM career, I think I was always trying to get all the data to have the complete perfect story. Um, And over time, I've become more comfortable in uh, just understanding, okay, where are the gaps? And it's good to be open and clear about the gaps you have in your data story sometimes. Like, okay, we don't have this right now. And then the other thing to be clear about too is like there can be a cost of not making a decision. So you can sit around and not sit around, but you can try and gather all the data, but that's going to take you one week, two weeks, a month, two months. Uh, That can be cost of not making a decision. I'm actually going through something like this right now meeting I had earlier today, where one of the things I was playing out is, hey, folks, we've got some data here. Yes, I acknowledge you don't have all of it. But in the meantime, while we are trying to pull together the rest, there is a cost to us of not making the decision. Adam mentioned he wasn't an Amazon person. I'm not either. But I think Jeff Bezos has talked a lot about there's kind of two types of decisions. One's a door you can walk through. And if it doesn't work, you can turn around and come back out of it. And the other one's a door you walk through. And once you walk through that, you can never go back again. And so the the expensive and the scary decisions are the ones where it's a long-term commitment and you can't ever go back on that or change the course of plans. But for a lot of decisions we may make, I think as long as you've got enough foundational knowledge and you've got a strong enough hypothesis, you can make step four and say, let's walk through this door. And if it goes terrible, we do have the ability to turn around and walk back out of it. So that's some
0: of what, how I think about the decision-making process. Thank you, Greg. Welcome. It's great to have you here. And then, Sumathi, this was your topic that you recommended. Thank you so much. It's proving fruitful already. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And then, actually, if, if you could, piggybacking on Greg's comment about the two-way doors and one-way doors, you know whether this is a, a really big decision or a small decision, how do you know that without enough information to decide whether this is a big decision or not? So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and answer that question.
4: Absolutely, Jeff, and thanks for having me here. It's one of my favorite topics because, you know, I have learned a lot of things the hard way and also by failing and getting yelled at for not making the right decisions in time, you know, and that's why I think over the period of time, I have built skills and tools to make my process a little better. So going a little back about myself, my name is Matika Dambi. And uh, I'm currently the director for product management at Indrix. Indrix is one of the top data analytics uh, company in the transportation industry. You know, it's been around for 15 years. It's a Seattle-grown, Seattle-built company. And we work on all things data related to transportation. So if you drive a car anywhere in the world, we probably have your data. So I'll put it that way. Talking about decision making, and you know, how do you make a decision, and what do you do if you do not have uh, enough data to make a decision? Do you know how do you know if this is one path or the other? What I have seen, one thing it's important for anybody to you know first understand is that, like Greg mentioned, there is a cost to not making the decision. And the second part is the fear of making a decision. You know, we all go through this as uh, early product managers. And I think even as leaders, we kind of go through this extreme fear of, you know, what if my decision is wrong? You know, what if my, um, and, and it also depends upon how, com- how each company takes it, you know, how do they actually encourage people making a decision, failing and coming back? Or how does a company handle failures? that's where some companies encourage it some companies probably have different other different other uh, you know tools and uh, strategies to deal with it so when you kind of approach a, approach a problem and you look at the cost of not making a decision when you have a framework you look at the problem you look at the impact of that particular decision you capture all possible data to see if you if you are able to go one way or the other but there are times where You might have a hypothesis in mind, but you really do not know if that is true or not. And this is probably, you know, uh, very, very true most of the times to, you know, very new technological and innovative products, right? But, you know, sometimes a technology or a new concept, these are some of the areas where you can probably fail fast and come back. You know, you know that if this technology doesn't work, something else will work. The failure rate is probably less. But it is like it, but the bigger challenge is where areas like you're completely uh, hitting a new market or a new uh, user segment. If you kind of don't, you know, do the right thing for that particular user segment, maybe the cost of losing that market segment or cost of losing the trust of that market segment could be very, very huge in comparison to a technology so these are the you know areas where we have to look at you know, what is the impact here what, what is exactly that we are looking at is there something that you can fail and come back without major impact to the mission of the company the you know the reputation of the company and the market segment versus something that you really cannot make a mistake it will really tarnish your company or tarnish the segment or something like that so this is just one example of you know how you kind of you know uh, take quick decisions and fail fast and get back or something where you have to take a very, very careful assessment. Maybe you'll have to talk to more stakeholders. Maybe you'll have to assess the situation better and then take a decision.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Sumathi. Great to have you here. And then we are also joined last minute here by Merrily, another brilliant product leader. So Merrily, my question for you is one, introduce yourself, uh, although many people here know you by now, and then two, uh, what's your decision-making framework? So do you have like a structure to it that you always follow? Can you just share a little bit about how you make decisions and, and how much you're relying on gut instinct versus just a tried and true methodology that you you engage in?
5: Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Marilee. I am a product leader. I work for Google, based in San Francisco, and I do AR, previously speech, so a lot of AI. I'm very technical, so I'm an AI product manager. Always an honor to be a part of this fantastic group, Sumaya, Jeff, everyone else. It's just great to be here. Um, so for me... I work on products that have not been published or launched. So it's very difficult to get actual user feedback. These are the products that we call zero to one products. And, you know, they have their own pros and cons. Pros being they're super super niche, super new, super innovative. The cons are there's no true way to see, to get, you know, product market fit and things like that. But what you can do is well obviously your gut right your gut check as a product manager but also on the second point you can actually try to find similar products and or adjacent adjacent products that have worked and kind of try to create hypotheses and say okay if this worked for product x that's very closely related to what i'm trying to do then it's very likely that what i want to do is going to work so make a lot of hypotheses create metrics that make sense for you. So sometimes, you know, there are the defined metrics like the um, daily active users and things like that. But sometimes you may need to create your own metrics for your own product. So you kind of become like a creative analyst that comes up with new things and you kind of define what success and quality means for what it is you want to do. And it's super cool and it's super great. It's super vague. So if you like, This kind of um, uncertainty, in a way, it pays dividends. It's super, super cool. Oh, and a lot of A-B tests. That's it. I hope this helps.
1: We all sound like reasonable people. So (laughs) it's going to be hard to be disagreeable when we know that decision making is really nuanced. And so uh, the most controversial I'm going to get here is to say that most of the decisions we make, we would probably make them even without looking at the data uh, in detail. So if you know your product well and you understand what's going on, sometimes I know we take a moment and look at data again and again (laughs) before we make a decision when we can just go with our first instinct because it's based on our immersion in it and our immersion in talking to our customers. but And that's the just the majority.
6: All right,
0: Sumay, I think that's controversial, and I agree we're all here, uh, reasonably-minded, reasonable people. But Adam, Greg, or Sumathi, uh, I'll turn to you since it's been the longest since we've heard from the three of you. I guess summarizing the point is, how much does data support what you feel you already know, and how much do you go in with data and really change what you're going to do? So is data really just confirming what you feel you already know, or... Does it do you have some wild changes based off of it yeah that's a great one and i'll I'll jump in here because i'm i'm very passionate about
2: data driven decision making and a moment after samea jumped in i was thinking i i wanted to share my controversial point that your boss is probably wrong i think we rely on tribal knowledge a lot to make good decisions when we don't have all the data and that's absolutely essential for us as product managers this is why we develop experience domain knowledge and when we do we get smarter I think that the key to the question you raised, Jeff, is understanding where you truly do need data and getting the right data from the beginning is the key to a really powerful decision. I think sometimes it's really easy to just go on a broad, unfocused exploration and you kill way too much time and resources looking at things that you just don't need to know. And so this is where beginning with a clear sense for your hypothesis and what you believe is the testable or validatable opinion or point of view you have to then be guided by the data and go get the right data in order to make a decision that is you know, both objective and, and frankly relevant to what it is you're trying to do. I think too oftentimes we look at the wrong data points because we're not clear on, on what question we're truly trying to answer, or in some cases we're guided by a prevailing opinion that might come from above that tells us, Hey, I think the answer is this. Can you go get me the data that validates that newsflash? You can always find data to validate your bias and That doesn't make it the right thing to do.
3: Yeah, Adam, I think you said a lot of great things. I don't want to just repeat everything you said. But I do think, especially a bit earlier in my career, I'd always go look for the data and try and have it all. And it would take a lot of time. And sometimes the data I would hopefully get, or I'd be hoping to get, wouldn't be able to get it. So it would be incomplete. I couldn't make the convincing story that I wanted to. And to Adam's point, you do need to know the data you want to get. Really formulate the questions in your head for yourself. Don't just say, I'm going to go explore this data for... Two hours and see what I can find. I guess every once in a while that's possible and that that can be powerful. But really, if you're just going on a, a wild hunt for data, you could find out the data is not there. You're not confident that you find is even accurate, and you could build kind of whatever story you want. And so I think it's, it's over time. It's a mix of you just do get some comfort with data, but you also do develop a sense of the things that really matter. There are a lot of data points you could pull that that don't. Really matter, and then there's a few that do. And so, some have said earlier, there's kind of those key things when you just develop a sense of okay, this part's important, this part's important. Hey, that's interesting, but interesting isn't always required to make a decision. And I've heard a lot of people talk about hey, we are data driven, and while it sometimes is true and useful, I've also heard like we're data informed. Like we have, I think it's important to develop a perspective in advance. You can have ex- you can run experiments and have hypotheses, but I don't think that we should use experiments to settle and decisions or not make a decision. You should have a perspective, make a bet on what's going to happen that should be informed by some level of data or experience, but it just be like, well, we have no idea. So we're going to go ahead and just experiment our way out of this. And that's going to give us our decision, come with hypotheses, have have good discussion that's heated or uh, debatable amongst the invested parties and lead that. But yeah, you, you don't always have all the data you want. So it's really important just be clear about what you think is the most critical parts.
1: I think for PMs in general, more than half of the decisions they make are decisions they're not even conscious of. And those are decisions of prioritization. As PMs, we make those prioritization decisions actually on a daily basis in general, because we're presented with data and subconsciously or consciously, we're making a decision on whether to let that data change our priorities or not. So I I think... There are all these layers of decision making that we make. And not all of them are these tensionful decisions that we need to study and to understand all the different outcomes and design experimentation around. I think we take that for granted. But when we have new PMs on our teams struggling with those kinds of decisions, I think it becomes really apparent that. The, a lot of the work we do and over time, we just make those decisions on the fly. We're not actually taking any hard data into consideration when we make them. So I, I just, I think I, I wanted to highlight that as something that, yes, we might take it for granted and not think about it, but it's truly part of the whole decision-making spectrum that we deal with on a daily basis.
4: What I wanted to add is I have been in companies which are very data-driven, and they also have an internal ecosystem where a PM can quickly go and pull the data that they want. They have self-service data engine where they can pull, run the queries, pull the data that they want, create charts, and make decisions. But also, I have been in companies which do not have that good of an ecosystem internally, to get the data that you want to make those decisions. In one of my previous companies, if I wanted some data, I had to go and put a ticket to my development team to run a query and get me that data. And sometimes it is like a a sprint, sometimes more than a sprint. And that comes back to me to prioritize that ticket for the team. So it becomes like a battle between, okay, should I wait for the data to make the decision or let the team continue with, with the tickets? So what I have uh, observed and uh, what I have learned is sometimes I rely on a combination of data and also build an ecosystem of experts within the company who can help make that decision. I think or Adam once mentioned saying that it's not just about making decision in silos, it is about knowing who to bring into the room, who to create as to go to and have that discussion and make a decision. And that has served me really well when I was a starting PM on a particular product where I didn't know much about the product. I created an ecosystem of all the experts in the room, experts in marketing, experts in the compliance and other departments who were very knowledgeable in that area where I could go and have a discussion to make a quick decision. Because data was not always available, or sometimes data could be mi- misleading as well. So if you're looking at market data, if you're looking at competitor data or multiple other data, it could be sometimes m- misleading. And Greg was saying that if it is a very beginning product, you probably do not have the metrics to really churn and look at that as well. So building various cohorts of how, what are the different th- aspects that you can rely on to be able to make that decision is very important. And as you grow in that position, you become SME yourself. And at that time, if you do have the data, if you have multiple sources to rely on, plus you have customer feedback metrics, these are all various tools that we can continue to build upon to make the right decision.
0: And Red, I think it's time for you to have your voice be heard on this episode of how to succeed
6: in product management. As much as I care about my voice being heard, it's not why I'm here. But at that point in time, I'm going to start inviting folks up to the stage. Looks like we have a lineup, Jeff. So if you're comfortable, I'd like to open it up to Q&A before we go back to you. Absolutely, Red. This is your moment to
0: shine. This is what the people come for every day, every Tuesday at 4 p.m. in how to succeed in product management. They want you, they want to hear their voice, and they want to have their questions answered. So take it away, Red.
6: Awesome. Matt Hewlett, you were also a guest in the past. Do you have a question or something you'd like to add to the stage? The mic is yours.
7: Thanks, Red. I'm here to troll the stage, actually.
8: That
7: was a joke. Clubhouse got very serious. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I love this topic. And I'm wondering for the, the folks that are listening, a question for the panelists and the moderators. What is your favorite decision-making matrix that you use on a regular basis? <laughs>
4: Yes. Talking about frameworks, I, I really love three frameworks and I've used it time and again in, in various stages of my, my career here. One is the typical, the rice matrix or the impact, probability and effort matrix, which we use for requirements. And we look at what is the impact, what is the effort and is it really uh, something we should do. So I use that quite a bit for, for requirements and ideas prioritization as well. The second one is a personal favorite to me because one thing I learned as a product manager is that I need to manage my own time really well. And I follow the matrix of the the, the four squares here where I look at it as, is it important? Is it urgent? Is it uh, not important, not urgent thing? So Something which is uh, very urgent and very important is what I like to focus my effort on. Everything else, I either give it a future date or try to delegate it to somebody else. And that has helped me really organize my time and how I use my time and where I put the maximum effort really well. So that's another tool that I I like and use it for my personal time management. The third one is basically a pro con list, a very simple pro con list for every decision. This is when I do a brainstorming session with the team. I use this to to look at what are the uh, pros of doing, going with plan A, what are the uh, challenges with plan A, just write down the pro con list. And then go from there. We do the same thing for every, every decision that we have. And then weigh it based on, based on the goals we have. We start off with goals. What exactly are you trying to achieve from here? What are the goals for this particular decision? And then go through the pro con list and make it.
6: Okay. With that in mind, and hopefully I'm saying this correctly, Sumantro at Mattress Firm would love to hear
8: what you have to say. The stage is yours. Hey, really appreciate it. Absolutely. What's your question? Awesome. You can call me sumo, like a sumo wrestler. Really appreciate everyone. So question for the panelists. What is your go-to method for sourcing new ideas or iterating on mature and new products? Really curious. There's a number of paradigms. There's e-commerce, in-store, digital product, payments, so on and so forth. Do you parallel path, quick wins? Do you? Is that your sense of iterating or is it more about chasing down bigger ideas? Do you look internally, externally? For the audience over here, I think it'd be really interesting to know how you think about that and what sort of is the driving factor as you continually do that and as you have done in your careers. Really appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thank you. Sumatra, or Sumo, one quick question. Is is this question coming
6: from a perspective of e-commerce? Yeah, I guess it's,
8: yeah, I think it it could be broader. It could be commerce, it could be digital product, it could be anything, whether one's managing an online newspaper, it could be any sort of customer experience, or it could be a user experience that's not at all commerce-related. So I was just curious to know how folks on stage really source new ideas what sort of is their go to source for inspiration for that whether it's analytics something uh, literature that they consume discussions with certain peers something which we can all relate to and perpetuate as many of us still spend times away from the office
5: i am happy to to jump in and take a stab i personally love just talking to angry users and customers, this is where I get my inspiration from. I just ask them what they don't like about the product and what their pain points are. And I solve whatever they, their complaint is. And it's great. Also, if you go in places like Twitter and, and search for, hey, I wish X would do why. It's a fantastic source of inspiration. So yeah, just listen to your customers, find a way to have a direct and touch with them and just see what they have to say.
4: I'll take a stab at this as well. I think with the with the with the way the industry is going and how technology is changing at such a rapid uh, pace here, I go to multiple forums for for ideas here. The social media is one. Lots of analyst reports. I do. I listen to a lot of podcasts related to my area of uh, work. I work in the auto industry. This is the the. You know, roller coaster time for auto, where everybody is talking about EV and autonomous vehicles and whatnot when it comes to this particular industry. So, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And then internally in my company, we also have something called blue screen sessions, where once in a quarter, we product managers just lock ourselves for about four hours and just throw ideas on the on a blue screen currently we are doing it on Miro and other tools if, if we were in person we, were, we would actually do it in, in person working session and from that there is a voting system that we do to identify which are the top ideas and then we go a deeper into that particular idea trying to understand what is the market opportunity what is the TAM there what is the TAM there which market segment uh, should we focus on and then, if the if there is more traction, we take it forward through a process that we have called a PMM uh, process, where we have to present our idea to the senior management and get funding for it. So that's an internal process. But when it comes to getting ideas, I'm all over having conversations. I also connect with. Uh, like-minded industry people on LinkedIn and throw a thirty-minute on their calendar and sometimes have conversations on, hey, what do you think about this idea? So do a lot of things to continue to get ideas from all over.
0: Sorry to interrupt here, but I know Greg Young had to leave, one of our PMs from Microsoft. And so, Greg, before you leave, I wanted to one tell everybody to follow you because even though you've got that party hat, which means you're new to Clubhouse, that could be deceiving. You've got a lot of great insights to share, and I hope you'll continue to come on to Clubhouse and share them. I want to give you a chance for concluding thoughts before I turn it back to red to manage the stage and then continue the dialogue after you leave us.
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks for letting me join in. Actually, a uh, product feedback I just realized for Clubhouse here is I did uh, read your feedback that I uh, don't have the picture up as valid. But right before I started speaking, I, I did add it while I was in the session and it hasn't showed up here. So maybe that's cash or they don't update real time or something. But anyways, quick closing thoughts for me real quick was on, on the last question. I think Sumo, one of the things I heard is like, how do you come up with ideas? Use small stuff, big stuff? And I think it's a mix. And part of it is going to be informed by whatever your team, your company's goals are. So it might be like, hey, we just need to move this thing down the road or, Hey, we need something new, big, crazy idea. But in the absence of that, I think it, it should generally be a mix. You want to have some smaller, maybe more confident, uh, high confidence bets. And then some things that are maybe bigger and riskier, but have outsized reward potential. Um, and then as far as where do you get ideas from, I think merrily mentioned one that I really agree with talking to customers. They will a lot of times give you great insights, keep asking them why. Don't ask them to tell you what they want, but just talk to them about what their problems are and figure out can help address those. I think looking at competitors is one way to do it, but don't keep yourself looking just at competitors because you will fall into groupthink in a way. So even look at other apps, other products, maybe on Directly or just see what's going well there. Data helps then, like Samantha mentioned, talking to others in the industry, just sharing ideas with PMs or other folks. But anyways, those are quick closing thoughts from me. Jeff and Red, thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it.
0: Greg, great to have you here. Thanks for being here. And so now, I just want to also give deference here, Sumo, you're hiring, and we've got uh, a lot of people here. So, if ten seconds or less, can you tell us what you're hiring for? How people can connect with you?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Hiring for product managers for for a sleep app. So it's nothing to do with commerce. Also hiring for conversational commerce. If you're interested, connect with me directly. My LinkedIn is my full name. You can also uh, email me my first name dot last name at mfrm.com. That's a bit <laughs> convoluted, but I' would love to hear from you. I'd love to connect with all of you. This sounds like a vibrant, engaged community. We'd love to be a part of this.
6: Rock on, Sumo. Hey, I do have a question, Jeff. If people wanted to connect with Sumo, besides following and DMing, is there like a Slack channel or anything for the Product Management Center or a resource that you think we can connect on?
0: It's funny you should ask, because just yesterday the product management center started a slack channel one of the channels or a slack workspace i'm so new to, to this whole thing i don't do slack but already in just one day we're seeing a lot of cool connections being made people who like machine learning are meeting each other people who are in fintech are meeting each other and it's already it's taking hold and magic is happening i don't know how to tell people how to get to the slack channel other than connect with me on linkedin And then I could uh, send you the link, the invitation link. I think that's the best way. And then Sumo, we have a place where you could post those jobs that people are looking for those jobs and it's a growing community. So please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll get you the Slack invitation and then you could post your job there. And then everybody here, that's just another place. The Product Management Center is trying to be wherever you are, wherever people are, and form this community, share knowledge, and really have an impact on the discipline. So I'd love it if everybody here wanted to join us on that Slack channel and On Monday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific time, we're having a very first Ask Me Anything with two product leaders in ML, one from Amazon and one from Microsoft. So seamless transition, Red. It's almost like you planned it and you didn't. That's just what we we call podcasting or Clubhouse magic. Speaking of Clubhouse magic, we've got 13 minutes left of this show and I want to make sure that we get some controversy, but more importantly, that each of you learn something from each other. And so I'm going to ask Adam, do you have any other controversial takes as it comes to decision making that you want to float out there or stake a claim to and maybe battle it out with uh, the other product leaders we have on stage? And Matt and Sumo can hop in on that conversation as well. Yeah, this is a great one. So I think the I think the other thing that I really like, and I don't know if this is controversial or
2: not, is looking outside the category and like actively challenging yourself to pay a lot more attention to the things that you might think of as on the surface irrelevant i know this is something that both both greg uh and i think also merrily mentioned oftentimes the best ideas come from places you really don't expect and i think sometimes we get into this sort of maybe ivory tower notion no offense jeff of the experts have all the, the the right answers and everything else is maybe lower velocity or less on point but i think sometimes the the best stuff comes from really off the wall places i think if there's one thing that I have learned over the past decade as a product leader, it's learning to cultivate a curiosity for the stuff that seems maybe a bit out there, so that it's in the culture of how do you source ideas, even if maybe they don't always or often
0: get through the the bottom of the hopper. Any reactions to that? That seems not too controversial, Adam. I don't know, but uh, maybe some Well, maybe, maybe I'll
2: throw I'll throw one more thing on this. I think I think oftentimes, maybe most of the time, the experts are wrong. Like the people who've been working in entrenched roles in the same space for a long time, think they have the answers. And and they probably don't.
1: I, if you're using a user-centered approach to your work or to thinking through your the problems and the solutions, then the experts just become one other voice. They're almost irrelevant in the conversation. When I think, currently I'm actually working within insurance tech, and I think the whole team has the autonomy and the mindset of thinking through problems from the, the user's perspective, in what situations does it become challenging? I think it becomes challenging if you lose sight of your of your user, essentially. If you don't, then your user is gonna be your guide in a lot of these conversations.
2: I think that's a really great point, Sonia. And in, in, in an effort oper- for us to find controversy, we're probably failing. But I, I think what you said is super important. You have to be really like, guided by what it is you're trying to accomplish, which is to solve a problem for your user or for your customer. And when it comes to bringing in other information or other data that might help inform these things, I think a lot of the times we get a little too enthusiastic about the novel or about what the flavor of the week is. There are times, though, when you have to really get back to fundamentals and, and ask
0: yourself and your team, hey, what problem are we really trying to solve? And then I'm gonna chime in on this whole expertise thing. I do agree that you've gotta mix things up. And I also think it's you could dangerously fall into a, a less like a trap of what's not possible. And I think as product leaders, we have to redefine what is possible. And to do that sometimes requires an imagination that's not been beaten down by many little failures or lessons, so to speak. So I do think taking what and being successful, what what makes you successful, but then applying it in new places can help you make big changes. I'm curious if anybody uh, else has a, a comment on that, quote unquote, controversial take about the,
8: the downsides of expertise. If I may chime in, I don't think there's anything controversial per se. I think it, it might rub some folks who are, who, are very, who are in the rhythm for how they necessarily have been doing their work. But I think disruption is the name of the game. And it's not necessarily disruption in in practice, it's disruption and approach of of converging around the KPI that we're all looking to hit and target and supersede on a continuous basis. So I would like maybe delineate the two and I can understand why in a new environment where so there might be some unfamiliar faces that could be perceived as controversial, but I think it also comes down to a little bit of management and not just necessarily people management, but just collegial, having a good collegial uh, uh, relationship and setting the expectation that uh, let's try and tackle something to take it to the next best level that we can achieve it. So I'm not sure that sort of answers your question, Adam.
0: Whether it does or it doesn't, it looks like we're uh, might be <laughs> muted there, but thank you for that point, Sumo. And we're going to go to, uh, Sumo, did you want to pop in before I have my last kind of thing I want to uh, question for each of you?
1: Yeah. Oh, actually, sure. I appreciate that. I wanted to ask Matt about his decision-making framework. And the reason I, I want to ask about that, because Matt, you get to make decision at a large scale. Sometimes that, as a PM, I also don't like to make, <laughs> which is all around running the business and turnarounds. What are some of your decision-making frameworks?
7: Perfect, perfect timing, sumea
1: Are you running?
7: <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sumeya
7: knows I'm always...
1: trolling the troll.
7: I think there's a handful that everyone uses. And I think the moderators did a really nice job of walking through their favorites. I think I always look at decision making with the impact, the cost, the risk in mind. But for me, I kind of circle a bigger circle around those decisions. And I think about the objective. And I think about whether this decision is small or big. And so I imagine a large knob where I'm trying to decide either are these small decisions or big decisions. Someone referenced the Amazon decision-making framework. I, I overlay all those decisions that way because one of the things that you don't want to do at a strategy level, leadership level, is you don't want to disincent your team from making good, fast decisions with excess macro mucky mucks. You don't want executives playing around with really smart decisions that aren't going to be killing your business. And so I think deciding how to do that and when to do that is an art. I'm a big fan of RACI, understanding who's responsible and accountable for decisions as part of that framework. But I step back often and say, okay, what's the overall business or product objective that we're trying to hit and what scale of decision is this going to be? And then let's go through the prioritization framework. But a lot of times people obsess and you talk to a product manager it has their favorite feature and they have a null hypothesis and they're talking 800 miles an hour most of the time those decisions aren't going to kill the business and you just generally let them run with it. But if there's something that's this pet project that's way off strategy guardrails, you have to go back to first principles. And I think putting that racy framework around a lot of decisions enables you to run small and fast, but also gives you the chance to pull down on the uh, train brake, if that makes sense. So circling those frameworks with objectives and then type of decision and then understanding the process of making those decisions so you don't disincent smart people. Executives shouldn't be making a lot of decisions. So it's pulling on that train brake very infrequently, but understanding how those organizations make those decisions. And so everyone understands that's really important. So that you have Amazon, for example, many people cite it as one of the probably the largest startups on the planet. They keep those, that business humming really fast because it's very clear how everyone makes a decision. I don't know if that answers your question, Samana.
1: Uh, yeah, it definitely does. I think I probably use the the least complex decision matrix or framework of everyone. I, I, I used RACI for a long time at GE when I did when we had to use Lean Six Sigma and everything was driven by data to the nth degree. And over my career, I've used so many, but now <laughs> I just use one, which is I, I think about my objectives and then I have a two by two that has risk. And outcome or impact. So risk is on, the, on either axis, but I'm always interested in working on the right corner or the, the top quadrant piece. And within each one of those high risk, high impact outcomes or features or points where I need to make that decision, then I break it down further. But yeah, it's, it, mine is uh, very simple these days.
0: I'm loving the dialogue. I love trolling the troll, who is no <laughs> troll, but our good friend, Matthew, thank you for being here. Stay up on stage now. We're going to close this down. So Adam or Sumathi, whichever of you have the hardest of the hard stops, unmute and, and share your concluding thoughts.
4: So one one concluding thought I would like to leave uh, the team with is decision-making is tough. Decision-making takes time to build confidence on and to build your you know, tool set to really be good at it. And that is what, you know, progresses us from being early product managers to leaders. Decision making is considered as one of the key skills when when you are chosen to lead a team or lead a product line or even be a product leader. So do spend the time in improving your skills and decision making. Another point here I would like to make here is there are times when the decisions could go wrong because failure is a part of all that we do. And when that does happen, we all have to stand behind our decisions, which means take ownership of the decisions, take responsibility for the uh, decisions, support the entire team that we have collectively failed, and come out with an alternative plan as to why it went wrong and what can we do next. You know, that kind of builds a trust among um, everybody to say that when you're making a decision, you're standing behind it and you mean uh, your business over there. So that's also an important thing that I would like to leave the team with.
0: Thank you very much. And Adam. Thanks, Jeff. So I
2: have two resources to recommend here, and they sort of focus on the, the different lenses I rely on when I think about decision-making. In the day-to-day grind of, of product management, when we think of ourselves as in the conventional box, I'm a big fan of being scientific about decisions. And one of my favorite books for modeling this is Lean Startup uh, by Eric Ries. It's an oldie but a goodie and it's a great way to introduce yourself to the notion of minimum viable product if that's something you have less familiarity with and it's got some great very relevant examples that apply to what you might be experiencing whether you're in the consumer side of tech or otherwise and that's one that i teach from with my students at uw's continuing ed program the other resource that i think is interesting is focused a little bit more on the inward battle that we face as product managers Sometimes when we face a decision or an intersection of pathways, we, we have a hard time letting go of things that may be what we're used to, may be familiar, but they're not really where our future is. And for that, I think it's important to recognize the, the biases that we bring to that sometimes will get in the way. And sometimes we won't even realize that are getting in our way. It's a little bit like what someone said about how we are constantly making decisions about what to prioritize before we even get to what we think of as a decision. And so, the book that I really like for that is a little bit off the wall, but it's an old one also called Transitions, written by Bill Bridges. And this is one that I think for those of you who are mid-career or approaching mid-career may find some especial resonance with. And it's one that I use with my coaching clients.
0: Thank you, Adam. It's really great to have you here. And Sumathi, it's great to have you back your second time on how to succeed in product management and your first time telling us what uh, that this is the topic we should choose. And I'm so glad you did. Uh, this is a fantastic topic. I've encouraged you to follow Adam and Sumathi. Both have generously given their valuable time and some amazing insights that I hope you come back to Clubhouse to learn more from them in the future. Matt, I can't uh, ignore you, even though you're an impromptu guest, but uh, you might be running at this moment. So I'm dragging this out. But if you have a chance to catch your breath, and if you wanted to share any concluding thoughts uh, or resources or books that you'd recommend, we'd love to hear them before we close out how to succeed in product management.
7: This is my favorite Tuesday activity. That's how excited my life is. And I would encourage everyone to follow the moderators. And Red, I did get a hold of Mike Kilden, I talked to him the other day, and we're going to get them on Clubhouse. So my favorite book, just it's a little bit different. I, I know those two books that Adam recommended. They're great. I always refer people to the Lean Product Playbook. I think that's an oldie but a goodie. And then lastly, just on decision-making, I can't remember which moderator was alluding to this, but when you make the decisions and you're doing your postmortems, I think the other important thing to highlight is articulate what that decision criteria was. Write it down, put it on Confluence so that everyone understands how decisions are made understand the criteria, and that it's documented somewhere. Because then you can build a learning organization, so you onboard new people, new PMs, they'll understand the style in which you want to run your product management organizations, and they understand what the bar is for making decisions. And over time, you'll get better at it, and you'll have a learning organization. So documenting what you do and why you do it is is super important, especially as we're Remote, hopefully going back to some offices, but it's important to write stuff down. So I'll conclude with that. But Jeff, it's also a Slack channel. Please use the Slack channel. It's, it's going to be awesome once Jeff figures out how to use Slack.
0: <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I, I'm only uh, 41 years old, but I feel like my parents, when any time a new technology came their way, they, it was completely baffling. But I've got the help of the Student Advisory Board. I want to give a special shout out to Bonnie Das and Saransh Jain. The two of them have guided me through this process of starting a Slack channel. And again, it's already magic happening. And it goes back to kind of Adam's point about expertise. Like, I have no idea what to do on Slack, but I went back to what we've seen happen with all the other product management center events. And there's something super simple about asking somebody to share who they are and what they're hoping to get out of being a part of the community. And so we, when you join the Slack channel, if you share who you are and why you want to What you hope to get out of the community, it's really cool. We're already seeing some matchmaking happen and people already starting to share resources and to share value. So, I'm going to figure out Slack, and if I don't, I've got a lot of people who are going to help me. And again, the Product Management Center is really all about a place where you could find knowledge. It's really about building community, and it's about impact. Uh, We don't want to just help people make more money. We want to help develop a more diverse, a more inclusive, and a more skilled product management community. And to do that, I need everybody who's on this call. I need your help. The help I need is either sharing your knowledge, either hopping on the Slack channel and letting me know you want to schedule an AMA to let our students and alumni and broader community learn from you. Tell me you want to be on Clubhouse where we have this show every week, or we're going to start some programming again in the fall where we'll either have in-person opportunities to share what you know, or maybe we're going to do this virtually like we did for the Inclusive Product Management Summit. But uh, connect with me, give back, or if you're here to learn, people love you're by asking questions, you're giving somebody a chance uh, to show that they know something. So be curious, ask questions and come to connect with the the product managers who want to really help you succeed when they, when so many didn't have resources that they wish they had uh, when they got started. That was a big, long story there, but Red, I got to give you a chance. You went eight minutes over your time. Your kids are probably desperately waiting for you. But do you have any concluding thoughts?
6: My only concluding thought here is, please, if you're in the community, follow Jeff, hound him for an invite to Slack, and come back next Tuesday, every Tuesday at 4 p.m. We're going to be here for you, for the PM community. So with, with that, thank you to everyone who spent their afternoon with us.
0: This episode of How to Succeed in Product Management is brought to you in part by support from AppTemptive, which enables product managers to measure shifts in customer emotion and gather actionable feedback across the mobile customer journey. To learn more, go to aptentive.com forward slash uw.